Are you done with your M&M or should we record the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Unsolicited, the pop culture podcast with a philosophical twist, the one that you definitely didn't ask for. We are Sydney hosts, Prudence Book and Sweet, that's me, and Jen Kuray. Hi, that's me. <laughs> that's you. <laughs> and in today's episode, we're covering the recent season of Stranger Things, what we loved, what we hated, and the continuing re- relevance of the Russian villain stereotype. So let's jump straight into the Stranger Things breakdown. Prue, would you like to give a little summary? I would love to. <laughs> Stranger Things is a coming-of-age sci-fi Netflix TV series set in the 1980s town of Hawkins, Indiana. It was written by Ross and Matt Duffer, aka the Duffer Brothers, who created the show based on the question, what if Steven Spielberg directed a long-lost Stephen King novel? Quintessential boyhood 80s films are a direct influence on the style and narrative of the show, influences like E.T., Goonies, Stand By Me, Indiana Jones, and the show follows a group of four, later six, young teenagers named Mike, Dustin, Lucas, and Will, and later the new girl Max and Lucas's little sister Erica, who are embroiled in a supernatural conflict where Will is taken to an alternative dimension called the Upside Down. In the search for their missing friends, they find a young girl named Eleven who has been the subject of governmental experiments and has psychokinetic and telepathic abilities. As the show progresses, we also meet the anti-hero police chief, Jim Hopper, Will's family, the mum, Joyce Byers, played by Winona Ryder, and older teenage brother, Jonathan Byers. We also become invested in Mike's older sister, Nancy Wheeler, who's like a Nancy Drew type character, and her relationship with the love interest, Steve Harrington, and later his friend, Robin Buckley, the daughter of Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke. Every season relies consistently on the 1980s nostalgia, intense dramatic plots, themes of childhood friendship, and the show has mass popularity across many demographics because it involves different genres of action, romance, and particularly in this last season, thriller. This season was released in late May, with the final two episodes released later on July 1st. It's notably a much scarier season, with the villain named Vecna, who is brutally killing teenagers in Hawkins, with a primary suspect, Eddie Munson, being accused of the murders. The core cast is split across various locations from Hawkins, Russia, and California, filmed for nearly two years, with nine scripts, 800 pages, runtime twice the length of previous seasons, and a massive cinematic budget. And the next season, season five, could come out in 2024 or 2025. So our discussion today is on the most recent season. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't seen it, please catch up before you tune into this episode, as we will definitely, as always, <laughs> be discussing many spoilers. Yes. So before we get started, do you have a favorite character? Um, I don't think I have. You don't? No. I really like all of them. I like that they work as an ensemble. Mm. I think probably I just like, like, I really like Steve. Of course, <laughs> I knew you would. Because um, I, I, and I like his character development. Same. I like Jim Hopper because I, mm. I remember thinking at the beginning of the first season that he was going to be just like an annoying cop who gets in the way. But then when he became like this father figure to the kids, I was like, yes, yes. that's exactly what I want. Yes. And David Harbour is probably one of like the best actors on Mm. that show if not the best he is brilliant yeah so what did you like about stranger things about this season this season i think (laughs) we can both agree that the production value was just next level yeah um the cinematography and performances and everything were incredible and you know obviously is a pastiche of like 80s um 
nostalgia mm. and, and films and, and books and it can be kind of formulaic like each season like oh supernatural villain mm. kids like save the day <laughs> but that formula works it like, does it's, it's so entertaining and it, I do think that every season has kind of built like they've somehow been able to like make it bigger reinvent itself mm. and I was reading a review that was saying that this season particularly as the kids are like visibly growing older mm. they've sort of brought in more real world or teenage mm conflicts and problems within like the supernatural universe mm. i think the one thing i like about stranger things and this is a, a rule that i have of any season that i like a series that i like is that um each character has their own world and their own significance like it's not as if the four like children like four teenagers, are interchangeable yeah, yeah like they all have different like personalities and struggles and then they always bring the struggles back together in a really well written sophisticated plot like mm. i thought that that element of Stranger Things is really well done. Mm. And I do think that they really kind of drummed up like the horror and gore aspect in this season. I think that like mm. links to the growing maturity of the audience and the characters. Mm. I was able to handle it. I was gonna, I had a question, which was, did you find it too scary? No, I do think that there um, were some episodes where I was like, oh, like that is really eerie. And like those images do sit with me and like the um, mm. digging of the grandfather clock was kind of really that like scared something you. That, like yeah wow. um the next big you know star of the show i think yeah. is the resurgence of running up that hill by kate bush which released in 1985 but recently has topped many charts including coming number one in australia new zealand sweden switzerland norway and number four in u.s including dethroning our much loved harry styles yeah and i think that's a real testament to like how popular this show mm. is is that everyone is hearing this song everywhere and like I think everyone just organically listened to that song after it was used in the episode yeah going off that the influence of the show is so incredible that in the finale um the character Eddie Munson plays um mm -hmm. the Metallica song Master of Puppets and mm -hmm. that is also rising, rising the charts again yeah I think as well like even our roommate who has not watched Stranger Things has been on a Kate Bush like like resurgence to her like yeah. I think the soundtrack with Stranger Things has always been reliably great like I think the clash should I stay should I go the use of reggae this season I'm a mm. bit of a reggae stan well, that's because the stone is now <laughs> past the duchy was a great song and I really appreciated its use mm. okay next so something I kind of wanted to talk about which I thought was really well done was the villain I think was a bit more sophisticated this time. It wasn't mm. just like supernatural monster, evil, mm. like that's pretty straightforward. Spoiler alert, the villain in this season is Vecna, which is like a Dungeons and Dragons term for this kind of like all seeing demon. But it's revealed that he's actually, his name is actually Henry and he was number one in the same um, government experiment of which 11 is like the 11th test subject mm. so he was sent to the upside down by 11 before she came into the boys lives when she accidentally opened a portal to another dimension because they you know had a fight <laughs> um and that is what made him what he is today and that's how he like draws his power from the upside down and that's the reason why the upside down is kind of infiltrating into hawkins it was kind of just a different dimension that didn't have any gateway into our world but because of the human influence and because of henry's like evil intentions it's now breaking through and i thought that was really interesting that at the end of the day the monsters 
aren't actually monsters they're being controlled by this like evil human mind mm. and so like the bad guys are actually at the end of the day wow. henry who's a you know human with ill intentions and the people that experimented on him that made him this way it's just an allegory for fascism <laughs> i think it's interesting like I think his justifications, like Henry, like he just seems like kind of a textbook psychopath. He's like, he just wants control. Like he doesn't think the world is run well and just wants to destroy everything and like watch it all burn. And I think that that's kind of maybe not that deep. It's like quite a straightforward like villain. Mm -hmm. But I do think that he represents how like that, you know, classic like child storyline, like monsters under the bed has transitioned into something mm. a bit more like detailed and sophisticated. Yeah. Rule number one, never trust a Henry. That's a villain standard really? if I've ever heard one. <laughs> I also predicted it because I recognized the actor from Twilight. I saw him and I was like, you've obviously cast this person to be significant. He's going to have a significant mm. role. So I knew from that. And then when he started like having a conversation with Eleven and helping her out, I was like, as if you're, you're a helpful character. There's a twist in here. Like yeah. I was predicting it from the very from the not from the very start but like when he started developing i was like there's definitely something awry here and he also mm. looked really creepy like, i do think it was like a good twist like even yeah. if you predicted it like how it actually all made sense yeah i think that they explained that well they did i, I liked the reveals next we go on to the discussion of eddie munson <laughs> so we have had a conversation <laughs> offline about whether we think he is sexy and whether we think he is cool just for context if you haven't been following there's been some Doja Cat drama. Yes. So recently, Doja Cat messaged Noah Schnapp, who plays Will, and he asked him for Eddie Monson's number. Then he posted the text messages to his Instagram, and then Doja Cat got upset and was like, look, I know he's a kid, but, like, that was some, like, weasel shit. Like, she was, like, snake behavior, like, that's a <laughs> private conversation, like, like how messed up do you have to be to post a private conversation and it's like Noah Schnapp who's 17 <laughs> obviously thought it was like a meme that Doja Cat was messaging him yes. but he's like 29 year old castmate's phone number <laughs> a nobody to this yeah. point yeah like. and you know maybe it's it's definitely poor to post a private conversation but also Doja Cat just went off on Instagram <laughs> live for like way too long and it was like just deal with this privately yeah um, just message Noah yeah so do you think he's attractive do you like his character I do I really like the Eddie character originally I was skeptical because there's so many characters now mm -hmm. I feel like it's hard to keep track so true um but I did I did like him I thought he was kind of different to the kind of cookie cutter bunch that we've met so far yes um, yes he definitely had that edge to him but like that's why I didn't like him because I think he was trying to evoke like John Bender from the breakfast club like edgy and cool but he wasn't really cool like he was kind of lame but that but I like that he's he's a complex character oh he plays Dungeons and Dragons but he also like you know does drugs and like likes Metallica and plays the guitar and he you know he has this like kind of probably undercooked like sad <laughs> family background lives in this caravan park like he's quite a contrast to the like suburban um yeah. Hawkins that we have been introduced to and I also just think like he was good form of like comic relief he was a good addition I like his 80s tropeness like I can tell he was plucked from the 80s universe as well and I liked they match them together I could tell, I suspected that something was going to go wrong in Eddie's life because if you haven't been tracking, mm. in every season of Stranger Things, they introduce some, like, white subordinate character and then they kill them off. It's happened to Bob. It's happened to Billy. It's happened mm. to Bob. And now Eddie, who for some reason was should have been called Betty, he was doomed from the beginning. Yeah, he was. 
he was doomed. But I, I appreciated his his relationship with uh, Dustin and with the rest of the kids. Did you care when he died? I cared. I was like, um, why did you run me into the bats? <laughs> it literally made no sense. I was like, don't run off. Like, that was so stupid. I think it was just poorly done, actually, because I think the thinking was that he needed to buy them more time. Right. Um, And so he was going to distract the bats because... Otherwise, they would go back to the house yes. where Nancy, Robin, and um, Steve were. But he was just like, I need more time. And then was like, I'm not going to run away this time. And just sort of ran into Accepted like, death. terror. Yeah. Um, it was so, that's the thing. Like, it just really felt misguided. Like, you didn't Yeah, it's like, die. that was actually just a really poor decision by you. Um, I didn't, so that's why I didn't particularly care when he died. Though I liked Dustin's acting. I thought that was, like, really sad. I maybe. was just kind of sad because I, I felt like he had just been, like, ostracized for, like, eight episodes, 16 hours, and then he just never got his dues. Yeah. And that's how it goes for some people. And that is brutal. Yeah. I mean, I really got moved by the, when his uncle was like putting up missing person flies to replace the ones that were defaced. Um, and then Dustin had to sit him down and be like, he was a hero and, and like he saved everyone's lives and no one's ever going to know. And I was like, that's so special. Like, oh, the uncle nephew relationship was so special. Yeah. I just, I found it sad, but speaking of, we did like Eddie. Yes. So what did you think of, like, the weird vigilante group led by Jason who was, like, on the basketball team? He was dating the girl who first died. Mm-hmm. And then he got a group together and started convincing everyone that um, Eddie Munson was a murderer and he was leading a satanic group of people through the um, Hellfire, Hellfire Dungeons and Dragons group. Yeah. So this is actually a reference before I... Not to let you answer the question, I'm going to jump in. So this is actually a reference to the West Memphis Three. So this was a case back in America in the 1980s where a group of uh, three people were accused of killing three eight-year-olds um, and they were accused of performing some satanic sacrifice and they mistook the metal music that they were into for devil's music and then it kind of led to the satanic panic in the community. It was later discovered that the West Memphis Three were probably innocent based on later DNA evidence um and it was just kind of a, a case of hysteria and that's what it was kind of trying to refer to yeah what do you think of the i read something in the atlantic that was like obviously they're trying to like gesture to kind of this rise in like toxic masculinity mm. and kind of white vigilantism mm. and i do i think that's a kind of useful thing to do but i did think that at points it was actually just distracting from the plot mm. like it was kind of just this additional obstacle and that it was almost like superficial. It was almost just like you're like the football players and your <laughs> assholes. Like there wasn't. Yeah. Um, it was very contrived. Like, yeah, it, I liked the fact that they were putting more pressure on it. Cause I, I could feel the pressures building on characters and I love that. It's like, Oh, there's just so many problems that now you have to solve. Like, how are you going to solve it? And I like yeah. that. Um, I like that stress element. But again, I agree. Like there were times when I was like, why is Jason so motivated? I know. Like, Grow I, up, Jason. I've like never been more motivated in my life yeah. to I, kill I, someone. I know. I also think that that it was almost, like, uncritical of the fact that it is, like, so inappropriate for, like, teenagers to, like, be running around town with guns and knives trying to kill each other. Yeah. Like, I feel like when you have a kind of extreme supernatural plot, it's, like, interesting to, like, balance that out with, like, the very, like, real... Social commentary. Yeah. And I just think that it was almost so detached from like the reality it was like escalated so quickly and it was the show was kind of like um uncritical of some of its most like American aspects like mm-hmm. when there was that scene where they all were like getting ammunition to kill um the monster and they went to that like massive that warehouse with like guns for sale and like 
grenades and like weapons and whatever mm. and um the like vigilante group were also there to get <laughs> weapons and i just think like they kind of made a joke like wow that's crazy that you can just go here and buy stuff mm. but like there's like 12 year olds walking around this shop and it was kind of like that's convenient for the plot that's how we can get guns mm. without being like maybe this is fucked up <laughs> yeah i really felt its americanness in yeah. those moments also when jason tried to kill lucas at the very end i was like get the fuck out of the oh, way are oh you kidding God. me yeah that that was so stressful mm. um and the fact that he saw he had seen like the supernatural influences but like somehow mm -hmm. like tied it again to like eddie yeah like, like he just fully was so deep in believing that they somehow had these like satanic powers and i just think that it was to the point of like delusion it well i feel like it could have been more grounded in like prejudice yeah but it was actually more just like delusional i'm interested in like the possible like thin racial reference here like when they started like coming after lucas i was like is this trying to make now a comment on like mm. the lynch bob culture in yeah. like some parts of the south yeah and also um with the class commentary with eddie like jason just refused to believe that his girlfriend had gone to eddie's trailer in the caravan park to buy drugs from him mm. and he was like no like she was a good girl she wouldn't hang out with someone like that she wouldn't do something like that clearly he was manipulating her yeah and i think that obviously he just he yeah just couldn't deal so he was playing with those so moving on from those deep topics do we love the new side characters what did you think of dimitri because i personally loved this character is that the prison guard it was a prison guard who became like a friend to jim hopper yeah i think he was a good character he was a sexy russian guy sexy you know he he came through he did also if you're wondering where you've seen him before he was in game of thrones i loved him i really hoped he didn't die and he didn't so i'm happy our girl the guy who was the californian stoner Oh, I thought he was kind of unnecessary. He was so unnecessary. I understand, like, that they wanted some, like, comic relief, but he took up so much time. Yeah. And I kind of don't like what he brings out in Jonathan. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> You're anti-weed. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just, like, anti, like, Jonathan being so high that he's not there for his family. And his girlfriend. And his girlfriend. And it was based on... um kind of bill and ted relationship if you know that movie like bill and ted's ventures or whatever it is and like the fast times of richmond high like he was playing that stoner character and then finally what did you think of that weird subplot where they went to dustin's girlfriend's like place for like a hacking situation yeah i think that was just like convenient mm -hmm. um for them to like have somehow get into this computer but i think that that's an example of like a way which they were just like extending the episodes like mm. i don't need to know about like her whole family situation and her christian beliefs and <laughs> her breakup with dustin and i think it was playing into like let's like just set this in a completely different 80s universe of movies like mm. it was clearly a, a different 80s movie that i couldn't remember the reference to but like i could tell what they were doing but it just also felt like this could be cut like this could be a bonus exactly, extra exactly i do actually think that my favorite new-ish character, mm. he was in last season, is is Murray, mm. who is Joyce's friend who ends up going to Russia with her um, and has somehow like learned martial <laughs> arts and can speak Russian. He's just actually very good comic relief. Great comic relief. Great dynamics. Mm. And he's played by the guy um, who plays um, Claire's husband in Fleabag. In Fleabag. Mm. And that it's like a complete, I think it's a completely different character. He's playing someone actually really, really likable. Yeah. And I, um, I, I back. So let's go on to our criticisms. So the first one I had 
is that the children um, I, I look this up the children are meant to be 15 yeah they're the meant show. to be in their first year of high school which is year nine and they're clearly <laughs> all like 18 plus like just to freak you out so steve harrington and he's meant to be 20 or he started when he was 24 he's now 30 and he's meant to be like an 18 year old yeah and the, all the actors they started around 12 or 13 and now they're all like 18 19 20 um and i think like the real uh weirdness was when um the deep fake happened with 11 as a little child so weird i was like oh i can tell this is computer generated so for context um millie bobby brown who plays 11 no longer has the body of an 11 year old girl (laughs) so when they're doing flashbacks to her in her institution they've like put her face onto a a little 11 year old 11 year old's body mm. and it's so unsettling let's go on to like we've talked about this before but the length of the episodes yeah so i read something that was like the episodes have been bloated mm. so i do think it's it's great that they have like the budget and capacity to film such long episodes and i really enjoyed them mm. but like two and a half hours mm. for the season finale that is the length of a feature film but it covered like like nothing no ground really like nothing was even resolved i swear it was so indulgent yeah so i think it was really indulgent and i think that wasn't just in like the individual episode length but in the actual like breaking up of the plot so for example we spent the entire season in this russian prison where jim hopper is being detained um and really like halfway through i was like okay they're gonna break out they're gonna all be (laughs) reunited and it just it didn't happen like it was like two hours into the season finale and we were still in Russia and I was like oh, we're not coming back together yeah. we're not fighting the monsters together that was disappointing I was disappointed by that too because like we spent so much time in Russia but I did not give a fuck about Russia there was a few subplots where I was like oh I don't particularly want to go back to like wherever you are at your journey like I don't mm. want to go back to like Joyce and um, Murray like on the plane ride to Russia like yes. I'm bored by this yeah exactly it was it was kind of boring because we kept having to like come back to where we were and oh yeah we were still in a boring stage of yeah. like a subplot yeah and I think that a, a side effect of that was that you didn't have crossover mm. between the characters like they were in three separate locations and they didn't all come together and obviously the ensemble is quite large so you still had like 10 kids fighting the evil in Hawkins Mm. um which is like the original setting but I was kind of disappointed that they weren't all Mm. together yeah because I love their little interactions like I'm so sad that Mike and Eleven were separated because I love their dynamic and I think it's such a shame because I understand that maybe they're trying to build to a fifth and final season in which everyone is together but you can't have a whole season that's like a trailer for the next season yeah so true and And another result of that was that jonathan and nancy were separated for the entire time so weird so jonathan and nancy are together in the show and and in real life and they've had (laughs) that and they've had this kind of very like hard one slow burn love story where they're finally together after nancy broke things off with steve because she realized she couldn't love him Mm. and he was just not mature enough but now all of a sudden they're bringing steve back into the fold he's had a season of being single and he made a platonic female friend and he has grown and now he's mature enough for nancy and so they were fighting the evil together doing some real trauma bonding so much tension between the two of them but i really didn't want it to happen because like yeah. you brought me for three seasons on this jonathan and um nancy you know, train exactly and now you're being like actually 
I've just decided to cut that like rope. And that's yeah, what and now we're more. reversing back out of the station and going back to the beginning when Nancy was into Steve and Jonathan loved Nancy but couldn't have her. Which I need this regression. Yeah, and it was kind of sad because I understand that it's like a tribute to Steve's growth, but that doesn't have to be validated by the love of a woman. So true. There are more women in the world. Mm. Also, I was so weirded out by like the obvious baiting of like Steve's impending death. Like everyone was like saying that like they expected Steve to die because they were doing all this like him reflecting on his future as if like he wasn't going to have one. Well, I think that would have actually been more convenient. <laughs> yeah, for the plot. But I would have I would have been so upset because I love Steve. They knew they couldn't kill Steve. It's almost like they were thinking about it for so long and then at the They're very like end. Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> they like just subbed in the other white guy. Like Eddie can go. Um what do we think about the kind of Mike and Will kind of love story implication? I I was there the whole time being like, give Mike your poster will. <laughs> and I hope it's like a beautiful like tableau of you and him falling in love. Like that's what I wanted it to I be. I don't think that they should be together. I think it's a good example of like, Will is really, really close to this person, loves this person so much. And he's realizing and he's getting older that maybe those feelings are like more than just friendship feelings. Mm. And his love for Mike kind of transcends that. And I think that kind of closeness and the way that that's helping him realize his sexuality is kind of accurate mm. and really good, but I don't necessarily think that means that like they have to fall in love. They should be together. I think the Mike and Eleven connection it's is kind beautiful. of unbreakable. I also I agree that's beautiful, but there are just times where I'm like, oh, you were being such a cute couple. Like this is how I felt <laughs> about Merlin when Arthur and Merlin had that clear like connection. Also, one weird thing I wanted to note is how Will is so obviously older than his like character. Like his mm. voice is so deep, but he's dressing like a little fifteen year old yeah. boy. And also, I think as well, this goes to your point about the fact that they weren't interacting, but I really wanted more fun, like, just relaxing moments. Like, her in high school, like, her hanging out with her friends, like, mm. back to, like, the D&D days when, like, they just, like, wanted to have some fun and, like, that was good enough and they didn't have to be, like, bullying in a crisis. That's so true. And the last point was that I really wanted Eleven and Hopper <laughs> to have more of a moment together. I really love their relationship, but I feel like when he died at the end of season three, I didn't feel like she cared as much mm. as I cared. I really wanted them to have more of a moment when like they reunited and have her like be more upset at the very beginning of the season about the fact that her like her dad wasn't there. Like I just well, wanted... she made that little um diorama. diorama of him. Yeah, I feel like that wasn't as meaningful as maybe they thought it was. <laughs> but that's why I wanted him to return from Russia earlier. I know. So that they could have had like a strong relationship. Cause I feel like the show was kind of like premised on the fact that we had already had strong relationships between all the characters yeah. so there was really no growth between yeah um any of the friendships or, or any of the family relationships it was just them all trying to find each other and like get back together yeah, yeah. it has it had the same vibe of just like running through an airport it's like everyone just like trying to find each other in the airport to get somewhere but like they didn't go anywhere they just found each other in the airport yeah yeah and, and season five will be <laughs> the flight the flight <laughs> Okay, so, as the show said in the 1980s, Stranger Things is also set amidst the Cold War, and therefore it also features this kind of caricatured evil Soviet enemy. I remember when it started in season two, and I remember thinking, what? This is kind of jarring, like this really, I felt like it was a bit lame when I saw the Russian enemy, like what was your impression? I thought that it was just kind of playing off the tropes of the time. I think in the first season it was like, oh, like, 
what is this government organization? Is it actually like a Soviet project? Mm -hmm. And then you find out that Eleven and the other kids are being experimented on as kind of weapons to fight in the Cold War. Sure. And I think that that is just sort of the the context for yeah. the show. But it was sort of in the background. But over the seasons, it has come far more to the fore. <laughs> yes. So after the Americans have shut down the gateway to the Upside Down, we learn that the Soviets have continued to run experiments in an underground base of an American mall. And they're referred to in the state, like in the show, kind of like in the in the the vein of the the time is like commies and ruskies and evil villains. And it kind of builds on this kind of Russian spy trope that was really popular during the Cold War. And in this last season, Hopper has been imprisoned in a Russian Soviet prison um, and Joyce has to go and free him. How would you characterize like the Russians in the show generally, like the Russian characters like mm -hmm. Yuri or Alexei? I think that first thing to say is that the majority of like prison guards and prisoners in the Russian prison are kind of harsh and they're all kind of just stand-ins for one another yeah and then the individual characters I think are quite like varied so you have um yes um, we love Dimitri yes who's our like subversive prison guard who actually ends up siding with the Americans we have our stupid Russian pilot who is just like trying to um, get a cash grab out of um, smuggling in um, peanut butter and stuff. Yeah, peanut butter and, and then <laughs> yeah, and people. Um, yeah, yes. these more textured characters. Um, and it's like it still kind of plays into this idea that like there are, like for example, when we had Alexi who was in the season before, like he was kind of portrayed as like a bit stupid and like, mm. and they all kind of seem to be obsessed with American capitalism quite quietly. Like they all kind of like peanut butter and they like to make like joke references. I don't know. I think it played into some of those tribes. Mm. So all this kind of goes to what is the Cold War? The Cold War begins in 1945 after the end of World War II and the three standing superpowers, Britain, the US and Soviet Union, carved up Europe with Russia taking the East, France, Britain taking the West and US maintaining influence in Germany. So the US decided to take an interest specifically in international politics relating to Europe, um, more prominently through the Marshall Plan, spreading free market democracy, um, which was contested by the USSR who were trying to promote a communist model and assert their ideological superiority. The Cold War wasn't fought on a physical battlefield, um, but through economics and politics and propaganda. It was a, a kind of a proxy cultural war and intensified in the 80s with an arms race and climaxed with the two nuclear threats from the US and the USSR, which um, allowed mutually assured destruction. Gorbachev eventually came in, dismantled totalitarianism in the Soviet Union, their control loosened, Berlin fell, and eventually the Soviet Union lost the war in 1991. Fun fact, Gorbachev also featured in a Pizza Hut commercial at the end and everyone was like, wow, capitalism really has um, won the war. Yeah. So in the 1940s to 50s, anti-communist messaging spread through the US to reflect the cultural and political war happening through Europe uh, between you know, capitalism and free markets versus state-controlled communism per the Eastern ideal. Um, so the Red Scare spread through American media. This not only spread fear about communist espionage, but also the general ugliness of the socialist Soviet state, which was presented as austere, you know, lacking freedom, colorless, violent, unforgiving. And in doing this, the US sharpened their values of freedom and the desirable decadence of capitalism in opposition, and also somewhat <laughs> stupidly embedded a deep suspicion of a welfare state, which is still existent today. Yes, with this red scare came McCarthyism. So in 1950, one year after the Soviets tested their first nuclear bomb, Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy publicly investigated alleged communist penetration into the State Department, the White House, the Treasury, even the US Army, and also vocally denunciated... Denounced. Uh, vocally denounced 
alleged sympathizers and spread fear throughout America. And Hollywood was not exempt from this. So the House Committee on the Un-American Activities interrogated those in the movie industry for communist sympathies. And this produced a wave of loyal and patriotic kind of one-dimensional Soviet villains and the Russian spy trope. Um, and that's how we have shows like Get Smart and Rocky and, and Bullwinkle, which kind of play up those Russians. Highly recommend The Crucible as an allegory mm. for McCarthyism. So true. So around the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Vietnam War, we kind of developed a more critical media towards American heroism. And that's how we have things like Dr. Strangelove, which satirizes American paranoia um, and the relationship to uh, the USSR. But by the 1980s, there was a solidified media trope where Russia became synonymous with this villain. Um, and this can kind of continue to the end of the Cold War and then even has progressed past that. Um, we've seen like the Russian villain in like Mission Impossible. According to the Washington Post, views towards Russians have been declining since 2013. So roughly the time of the annexation of Crimea. Public opinion went from 44% um, positive to 15% positive. Since then, the invasion, around 60% of Americans now view Russia as a critical threat. As we enter a new period of Russian-American tension, could we entertain a resurgence of this representation? What does it indicate? Is it propaganda? Is it nostalgia? Is it the return of the Russia boogeyman? Is it a lack of critical thinking? This leads us into the current political climate. So what is happening between Russia and Ukraine now and how does it affect you? So as we know, on February 24th of this year, 2022, Russia launched an undeclared war on Ukraine by invading. They called this a special military operation and denied that it is an invasion claiming that Ukraine and Russia are actually one. Vladimir Zelensky, who's the prime minister of Ukraine, has stayed in the country and refused to accept asylum overseas and is fighting back to protect Ukrainian independence. By March of this year, the UN had voted 141 to 5, with China and India notably abstaining, to demand that Russia withdraw from its presence in Ukraine. Significant sanctions have been made against Russia by most countries, including Australia, including temporary suspension from the UN and Human Rights Council, and hundreds of companies have suspended their operations in Russia, and many other com companies are having trouble in terms of energy providers mm. and um, resources, which are all kind of run by Russian oligarchs mm. um, and state institutions. So that's why your petrol prices are skyrocketing. <laughs> so the big European powers are continue to offer military, humanitarian and economic support. Biden has categorized it as a genocide, although notably isn't sending, you know, masses of American troops given the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan earlier in the year. But let's talk about why this actually happened. So I'll keep this brief, but... Um, there's a long history between uh, Ukraine and Russia and the Soviet Union. So Ukraine was once part of the Soviet Union. It was called the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. After the end of the Cold War, Russia lost control of Ukraine and it became independent in 1991. But they sh there's a significant overlap between the two cultures. Um, as NATO has encroached, like we said, it threatened, it threatened the Russian border, their sense of security and stability. Um, and they claim that this invasion, this war, um, is actually an attempt to ensure neutrality. Russia can't compete with other capitalist economies. Like, for example, it can't intervene into Ukraine by like buying off its massive agriculture and like having some sort of internal control. Their way of inserting power is through their military because they have one of the largest, if not the largest, military in the world. Um, and because of that, they're kind of going for a land grab, which was more common back in like the Napoleonic eras, but you know, mm. not as fashionable now. Mm. And to be clear, like NATO isn't actively encroaching on mm. Russia at all. It is like the perception of the Russian government and Putin specifically, that if Ukraine were to join NATO, it would threaten its position. Yes. Um, and also um, the prime minister has also said that he, um, he's trying to establish kind of a neutral position for Ukraine. I 
cannot I don't understand, but I can appreciate that that is like probably threatening for Russia in the same way as like when China moves into PNG, like that feels threatening mm. to Australia. It doesn't necessarily mean you get to invade mm. Ukraine. But NATO isn't even like a a physical body like it's just mm. an organization and a lot of former soviet states like estonia and a lot of other baltic states are members of nato mm. and they really rely on that because they feel protected by other countries if russia were to invade and that's why russia is able to go into ukraine um, more easily obviously that's geographic but also mm. because they are kind of less protected internationally and we've kind of been complacent about their position yeah i think just russia's dealing with its own inferiority complex and feeling <laughs> the need to assert itself putin has also been saying that uh the the invasion um was in aim to demilitarize and denazify ukraine with reference to the anti-russian voluntary paramilitary group in ukraine called the azov battalion who are now part of the ukraine special forces they were instrumental in 2014 um against the russians and became part of the national guard um, they famously died in the Nazi symbol, um, and even though they claim not to be Nazis, um, people have made accusations that they are, in fact, neo-Nazis. Obviously, not an excuse. <laughs> not an excuse, but still not actually great. So, Stranger Things did not obviously predict that this whole crisis would happen, um, but there is interesting overlap between the Cold War anti-Russia sentiment and what we're seeing now. The Cold War ended before we were alive and we also live in Australia, so we didn't actually have that much interaction with the Russian villain stereotype. Although note the Petrov affair, Google it if you want to learn more about um, kind of Australian hysteria against um, Russians. Mm. But during the 1980s, there was a significant increase of Russian villains in TV and film. Um, that sort of leveled off. But in 2020, we've seen a bit of a resurgence with films like James Bond. Marvel has featured um, Russian Slavic villains, Fast and Furious, Red Sparrow. Um, I think also of Killing Eve, which had a, a Russian uh, assassin and Death of Stalin. So this seems to be in the cultural zeitgeist again. Is this trope familiar to you? What is your relationship to the Russian villain trope? Yeah, I think it's probably familiar to anyone who's consumed, like, American films, particularly like, action films. Mm -hmm. I think that the Hollywood villain landscape has always been reflective of the political climate. So during World War II, the Japanese and the Germans were kind of ridiculed or cast as villains. Mm -hmm. During the Cold War, it was the Soviets. And then more recently, in the wake of 9-11, we've seen Islamic terrorists as, like, the primary um villain in sort of like a, a geopolitical or spy storyline it comes up so often if you watch any like detective um tv show there will always be a terrorist episode it's mm. always very poorly done yeah exactly and i think the fall of the berlin wall obviously didn't bring an end to russian villains on screen interestingly in the way that now you know we don't really see the japanese demonized as much um, the anti-Russian characterization kind of never receded from the American media consciousness, which I think is really interesting. And it's because that trope is like so well-defined and reliable. So mm. you have your classic spy or assassin. Mm. Think about even a classic Russian or Siberian setting as in Stranger Things of this like prison hellscape or Siberian wilderness where it's like cold and dark and, and awful. Um, and I also think that now we just have those like easy associations between like someone being Russian and someone being <laughs> evil. I always think of Kenneth Branagh in Tenet. Um, I've not seen that film. It's bad. Um, <laughs> but he plays just this like rich kind of Russian kind of oligarch figure. Mm -hmm. um, and 
there's actually just no real significance like to the fact that he's Russian other than the fact that he's like spitting in her face in a Russian accent and it just makes him like that much more cruel of a man which I think like that's the only justification I can see for that characterization and I think that the sense of Russia as like a geopolitical threat currently which has been heightened by Putin over the past few years um, has probably brought that um, stereotype back into um not not back into conscious back into relevance um and i think obviously stranger things a's nostalgia has that soviet element but now those parallels seem to be growing outside of um media um set in that particular 80s context yes i think what is interesting about the u.s representation of like the soviet trope is that they kind of produce like this octopus mind control idea of like the soviet union like everyone of its like little uh assassins and spies as a conformist and they have no free will and they um are kind of manipulated by the russian propaganda and they're brainwashed and so they're so loyal to the cause and i think it really brings up this enemy imagery um, that's founded in a prejudice that is uh, Eastern European people like Russians are uh, a threat to uh, the values of America, like the values of freedom, because they are so mind controlled and, and not about the survival of an ethnic identity. So it's about the survival of the nation, not survival of like an ethnic group of people. Whereas like that's a bit different in the case of 9-11 and how like Muslim people were terrorized after that. And that led to things like um, terrorism in mosques because you're targeting a religious group of people or an ethnic identity rather than like the red scare and red being communism because the Russian people are not um, related to as like a group of ethnic people. They're related to as like a government or an ideology. And this brings up the idea of the libidinal economy, which um, kind of it exposes that it's harder to rely on the symbolic economy of an enemy without a racial hierarchy. Like they have to rely on like the idea of governance. And so the libidinal economy effectively means that in, in the example of Donald Trump and winning the election, he obviously represented the uh, interest of the upper class because he is a billionaire and he wants to protect big businesses. But uh, people voted for him, even if it was going to affect their economic interests, because he maintained a racial hierarchy where he saw, um, you know, immigrants as being evil and, you know, build the wall, et cetera, et cetera. That's him upholding the libidinal economy, which made people work against their own economic interests. So um, when you see the threat narrative being created in other enemy imagery, it's a lot easier when it's like a foreign enemy um, because they can rely on racial prejudice. When we talk about the representation of Russia in media, we've had a bit of a debate on our end about what this represents. Is it propaganda or is it just a reflection of what's happening in the world? I have the argument that it is an example of propaganda. And I, I do this, I make this argument through the theory of securitization, which is effectively when a phenomenon or an issue that's kind of discrete, like for example, um, Ukraine uh, kind of maybe having conversations with NATO becomes an existential threat. And it's made so through discourse. And that existential threat is used to justify unorthodox intervention, emergency procedure. Another example would be 9-11. So for example, um, a terrorist attack happens. This then gets expanded into a threat against the freedom of America. That then used, that then is used to um, justify the invasion of Iraq. Um, so it has to work with a, a personified enemy image. So that's why it's so valuable to have like um, the representation of the villain in um, in media. It's a it's just like a way that propaganda works kind of subtly, not through the state, but through the um, general populace that is used to make the mood of the people okay with whatever the government actually wants to do okay so in the cold war the enemy image is created of the russian villain then based on that 
um, they're kind of starting to be represented as a threat to the freedom of America. They're represented as these brainwashed conformist people. On the basis of that, the emergency intervention is then justified, which is like a nuclear threat to like the um, Russian people. <clears throat> and then that just like allows you to take more of a militant stance than like would have been popular otherwise. You need to have that enemy image to justify it. And so what I, what I worry about when I see the Russian representation in the media is that I see the creation of an enemy an enemy image again and how that's sedimenting um, an audience perception of Russia that can help justify an emergency procedure. The only thing I would say to that and the reason I say it's not propaganda is because I think that films since the Cold War that have had Russian villains are just reflective of that anxiety in the American consciousness. I don't think that unlike state-sponsored media in Russia, it's not kind of this like concerted effort by like a collective organization to influence people. It just is sort of like playing off that stereotype that's already been developed. I would just say, I agree with you, but I think even if they are not like intentionally like trying to work through the state and present the, the state's message, um, being complicit in like the issue or what the, the state's agenda, I guess, <clears throat> in portraying these people uncritically and portraying them in a way that kind of misidentifies them, um, I think is complicit in a propaganda project. Even if it's not intentionally propaganda, I think it's unintentionally achieving the very, the very same thing. Well, so what does um, anti-American propaganda look like in Russia? In 2013, the Levita Center, which is a non-governmental, not-for-profit research organization, did a public poll in Russia. It realized that 65% of Russians agree that Western culture um, has a negative impact on Russian life. 79% of Russians think that Russia should strengthen its ties with other countries to counteract America's growing influence. And 77% of respondents think that the USA is using internal difficulties in Russia to turn it into a second tier country. Um, in Russia, they also use uh, the US generally to like hide away from any uh, critical issues they have from the public. So in 2012, there was accusations against, um, the, um, against Russia of electoral fraud. Um, they declared that the protests were kind of initiated by the U.S. State Department and um, were trying to spread and destabilize the the, the country. Um, they mainly use their social media to spread misinformation. So they use Twitter. They use um, I can't say it, but the Voktake.com, which is like a Russian social media network with like over three hundred million users. Facebook is, has significantly less influence, but they use this to spread like a troll army. So in two thousand twelve. Hacked correspondence between the Agency for Youth Affairs and um, a deputy demonstrated that there was a lot of budget that was being funded towards an army of bots in Russia to write kind of pro-Kremlin pro -Kremlin sentiments online. Mm -hmm. um, and this troll army uh, went into uh, different internet sites um, using bot manuals um, and pollute like the social networks. And another tactic of the of, of Russia is to kind of spread fake news like oversaturate the media with so much fake news that you just lose trust in the actual um integrity independence of the news mm. sources and like obviously our most um obviously the most mainstream understanding of this came from the facebook cambridge analytica mm. scandal of kind of trying to influence the election through fake news that mm. happened in the united states and in that's 2016. in 2016 and that's kind of very common in the Russian media landscape. And also, um, obviously, we know about like Russian interference in the US election, that it's ironic that they were accusing the US of the inverse mm -hmm. um, when it's actually the other way around. Um, they try and argue that America is uh, 
not living up to its own ideals. So especially in the Cold War, they were arguing that their Jim Crow laws um, meant that they weren't actually fulfilling um, their kind of presumed uh, moral superiority. Mm. Um, They also said that there was too much liberalism and they weren't actually supporting the people, so it was leading to rife inequality, um, that the US had too much sovereignty and power, that effectively the US um, was a proponent of, like, the bad values that they see in um in Russia for example Russia is very famously homophobic and so them um they might attach um kind of queer acceptance to America and then use it to justify why they're terrible um they kind of also perceive them as like internal rotting like they have internal rotting they're very greedy etc um a whole lot of fear-mongering um Mm. in in Russia in relation to America I um, wrote an essay on this a while ago about how the international human rights regime is like fundamentally a Western regime emerging out of the Second World War and how um, other countries in opposition to the West, so primarily, you know, North Korea and Russia, who are kind of recalcitrant and don't abide by human rights regimes, can kind of um, point out the hypocrisies in, you know, like same as China as well, pointing out hypocrisy in like offshore detention that Australia perpetrates or in like mistreatment of um, prisoners in Guantanamo Bay in the American example mm-hmm. um, as a way to kind of undermine the human rights movement as a whole and present themselves in opposition to it as like a form of Western values rather than a universal framework that mobilizes like states who are positioning themselves in opposition to the West to kind of call out that, that hypocrisy and actually justifies them not abiding by um, things like international human rights law, which I just think is interesting. Mm. And so do you think with what we know that there will be a resurgence of um, anti-Russian media representations? Yeah, I think I I read um, a BBC kind of opinion piece that was saying that that never actually went away. You know, the stereotype has just mm-hmm. kind of been crystallized in the American consciousness and is played off so much as a ster- as a stereotype that it doesn't even need to be linked to political events. But you're right, now that kind of Putin has kind of been cemented as a villain in our history, um, those representations are only going to gain more currency, I mm-hmm. think. Um, and especially because I think now there's a lot more understanding of the ways in which, like, America destabilized the middle east or was not really helping in afghanistan by the end or <laughs> yeah. all of these I things the heroes of like freedom yeah whereas like in opposition to russia it's like very clear that the invasion of ukraine was wrong and has been internationally condemned and so it, i think that would allow kind of american audiences to um they would like better be able to um, get on board with with storylines in which the russians are villains as you said as well it's because where um demonizing a a way of life or a certain state or a political ideology rather than an ethnic group that may be present in America Mm -hmm. so I think that it's honestly a lot easier to play off Mm -hmm. and I think that's um something that has been said is that Soviets and Russians are enough like Americans to feel like you're not punching down it's not like caricaturing um you know an Asian person like the Japanese were in World War II um it's more like they look like us um so that allows Mm -hmm. us to make fun of them or kind of demonize them more easily rather than because they're a member of a certain ethnic group Mm. um but of course nowadays we have to be more sophisticated so i do think that if new scripts are written that are set in the present day in Mm. which the russians are the enemy um 
that messaging has to be a bit more nuanced because there's like a Russian diaspora and because of globalization and because it's well known that there have been mass protests in Russia against Putin. We know that unlike in the USSR, there isn't as much of an image of like conformity and and mind control and things like that. But that's why I actually think things like Stranger Things and that nostalgia are actually more attractive to probably studios and production companies because you are able to be less nuanced about it and Mm -hmm. just situated within that the cold war rather than having to have this very like sophisticated <laughs> way um, of dealing with this way of dealing with these issues in in the modern day yeah i mean the iron curtain is not as firmly up and i think that relates to social media like for example when we saw news broadcasters shutting down in russia like dozdod i'm gonna say tv <laughs> rain um they stopped broadcasting because of the government was shutting down um, speech and communication um, that was antithetical to what they were putting out. Um, they accused the government of inciting extremism, abusing citizens, disrupting safety. They said, say no to war, and they walked off live on air and played Swan Lake, which unrelated, but, you know, kind of signals the death of a political leader. It's like this kind of trope in the USSR. Unrelated, great ballet. Yeah, unrelated, <laughs> great ballet. Um, so, but we're able to see that, and they moved to social media to, like, still be independent. Mm. Um, so I think it's harder for us to just completely consume any propaganda if there is propaganda coming out. Um, I also am not looking forward to the revival of, like, really grotesque American patriotism and, like, (laughs) the the whole, like, individualism is the way of life and, like, freedom is, like, the way of life and Russia is, like, I hope, like, that just, like, I I imagine it's going to revive in the zeitgeist and I'm not looking Mm, forward to it. I don't know. I I think maybe it would be different if, like, America was out there defending freedom and, like, was on the front line in Ukraine. Yeah, of course. I but feel, I think you get this real sense that there's, it's just, it's a proxy war between like the US and. I don't think so. But like, I think, I really do think it is because NATO is like the front runner is the US. And I think it is a NATO versus Russia scuffle that uh, Ukraine's been called. No, in. because like they invaded Ukraine, even though Ukraine weren't even going to join NATO. They were just like so afraid like that NATO was going to make that decision for Ukraine, which they can't do. Like, Countries have to opt in to be a member of NATO. NATO can't just consume them because they want they want them. Um, and I think this whole thing of Putin acting like Ukraine is part of um, Russia and trying to kind of retain that imperialist grip on the world that is so outdated um, and maintain those like forms of power um, and and bring them back into like the geopolitical landscape. But I don't think that. I think the US has actively tried to like not be involved apart from like being outspoken about it. I don't think that Ukraine is kind of being used as as a way to like get into the West. I think that it's really like it's about Putin's expansionism and imperialism. And I think obviously America kind of because it's a world leader kind of has to oppose that. But I also think it'd be incredibly different if we were still under like a Trump presidency, for example. I just don't I, I think I disagree with you in the fact that I think America's cutting their teeth on this like whole crisis. Like they're very much going to use this as an opportunity to reestablish their own like moral and spiritual superiority. And that this is a very much a like a um to like this um Russia feeling insecure about its position globally and trying to assert its dominance. And the only way it can, because it can't do it on like the terms set by American and like the European Western um, market, they have to do it in a military in a military way. Um, and they're baiting, I think, they're almost baiting America to intervene, but they can't because then it would establish like World War Three effectively. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't really think it's as. I don't think that it's that much of like a, a binary opposition. I think that it's it's probably more to do with like Russia's relationship with Ukraine in the same way that the annexing of Crimea was. 
kind of part of this whole like Russian propaganda that I that just, was I, part of the Russian territory. I don't think Russia cares as much about what Ukraine is as what does it represents on like the chessboard of like geopolitics. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, we, we, I, just, I, I think I we're just... not experts on this. <laughs> but to um, give our final thoughts. I just think um, an interesting thing about like American media is that Hollywood obviously closed itself off from the Russian market in its portrayal of like Russians. It has caused discontent among some politicians previously. It's similar to the alienation of the Chinese market um, when you make films uh, crit critical of, of China. And I think that's something that might cause a bit of tension in Hollywood in trying to kind of expand its like global reach, trying to market things to a Russian audience whilst also trying to, you know, um, have a consistent kind of pro-American, anti-Russian message. You know, the fun fact you pointed out is that Captain America <laughs> was released as the first Avenger, a different war in <laughs> Russia, because even like the whole um, kind of overwrought Americans patriotism, patriotism is distasteful to Russians yeah it didn't well thank you guys so much for listening uh, we hope that you learned something from our discussion and we would love to get your feedback on Instagram do you think that American representations of Russians in the media are on the rise are going to fade away are propaganda are uh, just a reflection of what's currently happening in the geopolitical world follow us on social media unsolicited podcast on AU um, on Instagram and Facebook and we'll see you next week this podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal of the Eora Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded, and we pay our respect to elders past, present, and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. The nice guy. Marty? What's his name? The nice guy who was working with Papa. Joyce's friend. Oh, I love him. What's his name? I'm Googling it. <laughs> Live Google. Um, I think it's Marty. Surely not. They surely had self-respect to not call someone Marty. Where is he? Murray? Murray.